President Kirchner yelled at President Fox of Mexico, uh, called a U.S. representative, uh, said something he had said was absurd. You know, it was not a pretty sight. Welcome to the 23rd episode of Global. My name is Sinclair Stafford, and I'll be your host for this episode. I'm also a program manager in the Middle East and North Africa division at IRI. If this is your first time listening, Global is a monthly podcast where we share stories and insights from authentic voices on one country per episode. This episode, we're doing Argentina, a land of contrasts and contradictions, as volatile as its landscape is varied, as we'll hear in the interviews. You know, we're still learning on this global podcast, so if you have any feedback or corrections or, dare I hope, compliments on this episode, feel free to reach out to us. You can email us at podcast at IRI.org, tweet us using the hashtag global podcast, or share your thoughts in the review section. So following the structure that we rolled out for the first time in our last episode, I interviewed three great guests for this episode, and I talked to IRI's own Casey Cagley, Program Manager for the Latin America and Caribbean Division, who will be joining us later to share his insights on the conversations. So as I mentioned, for this episode, I interviewed Dr. Benjamin Gadan, who is the Director of the Argentina Project and Senior Advisor for the Latin America Program at the Wilson Center. In addition to positions at the State Department and U.S. Treasury, Dr. Gadan previously served as the South America Director on the National Security Council in the Obama White House, where he was instrumental in helping relaunch bilateral relations. I also interviewed Agustina de Luca, a native of Argentine and the General Director of Directorio Legislativo. Ms. De Luca's organization works to strengthen legislatures throughout Latin America through dialogue, transparency, and access to public information. And finally, I interviewed Ambassador Lina Gutierrez, who served as the U.S. Ambassador to Argentina from 2003 to 2006 under President Bush. Previously, Ambassador Gutierrez served as U.S. Ambassador to Nicaragua from 1996 to 1999 under President Clinton. During both those periods, Ambassador Gutierrez was responsible for coordinating U.S. and Latin American efforts on a host of issues, ranging from counterterrorism and counter-narcotics operations to humanitarian relief. So I'll stop talking now so we can hear from the actual experts. First up, Dr. Ben Gidan. Argentina's economic and political history are inseparable in many ways. For instance, in the 1920s, Argentina was the seventh richest country in the world. How did we get from there to where we are today? Uh, the endless existential crisis for every Argentine. I mean, essentially the answer is bad governance and endless economic crises. I mean, that's really where you land. They've had very uneven growth, so boom periods followed quickly by bust periods where a lot of the gains are lost, and that's where they are today um, as an emerging market that always seems to be on the verge of success, and then something goes wrong. So how did Argentina get to the point where it was the seventh largest economy in the world? 
Yeah, I mean, I think it did so through export-led growth and a remarkable agricultural sector, which it still has to this day, but again, is unevenly managed. I think what it had was this remarkable uh, period of feeding the world, right, through grains and through beef. Um, It had a lot of investment in the early periods from the British, which helped, um, and it had a lot of cowboys who were very successful at ranching. So following the 1920s, we had the decade that was referred to as the infamous decade in Argentina's history. We could probably spend loads of time on that, but that's maybe outside the scope of this podcast. Uh, What we do know, though, is that Juan Perón was one of the results of this infamous decade. Could you tell us who Juan Perón is? Yeah, what you had in Argentina, as, as we discussed, was this very long era of successful growth where the wealth was concentrated in the hands of massive landowners in the rural areas. And they had, as you could guess, lots of political influence as well. You had urbanization take place, though, and suddenly you had the emergence of a large group of people living in cities ready to be mobilized. And they were mobilized by this individual from the military, Juan Perón, who created this mass movement that instead of being based on rural wealth and influence, was now based on the working class. That would be Peronism? That was not at the time, but now is known as Peronism. And again, it mobilized urban, uh, suppose the, they were known as the descamisados, right? Those without shirts. These were um, less uh, wealthy Argentines who were sort of ripe for the picking of a political movement that was created to balance the power of the rural elites and to say they were now going to represent the interests of workers and increasingly the poor. There have been in the intervening years some, some real crises in Argentina that have created a lot of informal workers and a lot of poor who again, were mobilized through Peronism, um, where it originally had been sort of a working class movement of unionized industrial workers. So Juan Perón was deposed in 1955, and following that, Argentina had a succession of military leaders. Could you walk us through what was going on in the country at that time? I mean, Argentina, like much of Latin America, has really complicated uh, civil-military relations. And Argentine political system has suffered from military interventions constantly. So we mentioned earlier that it suffered from weak institutions um, that have resulted in economic crises, resulting in, again, a real loss of per capita income throughout Argentine history. You could also say that the constant military interventions, which have resulted in a fairly weak Congress, a fairly strong executive, and lots of inconsistent policy, um, is also an explanation for the sort of dysfunction you see today and the real losses in terms of the stature of the Argentine economy. And that was a period where where one or the other political party would welcome often these military interventions. So until we get to the dirty war, which I'm sure we'll discuss, um, you had military interventions that were relatively bloodless that would not last an inordinate period of time. And so one or another party thought it was useful, in this case, the opposition and the radical movement, um, to have Perón deposed and to have, in fact, Peronism banned for, for a long period of time. So in this period of constant military intervention, you also have these tutelary democracies where you'd have a government operating, but with the military watching closely and prohibiting the functioning of the Peronist movement. So the culmination of military intervention in Argentina's Argentina's political history began with the removal of Isabella Perón from office. Could you tell us about that period known as the Dirty Wars? Yeah, so this was very distinct from a lot of the military interventions, or all of them that we've discussed. 1976, in March, you have a coup that removes the widow of Juan Perón. She governed at a very difficult time for Latin America, a time of great violence, guerrilla violence. Even within Peronism, there were great divisions that have resulted in death squads. There were right-wing death squads that the government itself was supporting. Suffice it to say, things were not going well. It was chaotic economically and politically, and, and there was a real lack of security. 
So in this situation, not surprisingly, yet again, the Argentine military takes it upon itself to intervene. Uh, but what was distinct here, I would say, were two major elements. One was the brutality. This was a case where the military came in and over time murdered as many as 30,000 Argentine civilians. Um, the other difference was the ambition of this government. So in previous military governments, they came in with sort of some muddled ideas at times of neoliberalism versus some elements of the military that preferred the, the traditional Argentine statism, the, the heavy hand of the state running the economy. In this case, you had a military come in that wanted to purge society of what it considered these alien elements that were um, against the sort of sense of Catholicism or conservatism or anti-communism that these military figures um, endorsed and felt they embodied. And so it governed for a much longer period of time govern brutally. It was a really transformative and, and tragic period in Argentine history. How did Argentina go from that period to its first democratically elected president, Alfonsine, and then to the great economic crisis in 2001? It took a long time, right? I mean, that, that brings us all the way to the early 80s where um, the Argentine military uh, was not quite successful in economic management. It's frankly very few of its predecessors had been. Um, it was losing legitimacy because of its poor performance um, and at times faced also some international pressure. The U.S. administration sort of it vacillated it, it whether it was an allied with this regime or not. Uh, infamously, though, the, the, as the narrative goes, was the, the war over the Malvinas or Falkland Islands where um, out of desperation and a sense of trying to rally Argentine society, the military government decides to invade and capture this disputed territory that was and had been always controlled by the British. Um, that war did not go well. Margaret Thatcher um, surprised the Argentines with her desire to, to project power and retake this territory. More than 600 Argentines died. It was devastating to what had already been diminished stature for this very brutal and ineffective military regime. And ultimately, it led to the collapse of that regime and, and democratic elections. You know, Alfonsin's period ends very poorly and ends with hyperinflation. And you get finally the Peronists sort of back in power where, again, they feel they are entitled to always be. Um, but in that case, it comes in in a very odd form. And it comes in with a sort of what appears to be a very traditional Peronist, this, this figure, uh, Menem, who, you know, uh, campaigns on a populist platform and he, he governs opposite that. He becomes the closest ally of the United States, which had traditionally had bad relations with the Peronists. And so, you know, the, uh, Carlos Menem surprises everyone and for every basically aspect of his economic model, of his relationship with the United States and his whole approach. And though a Peronist, he governs with some very orthodox, economically liberal policies, hyperinflation from, you know, over 3,000% ends in single digits in a period of three or four years. And you have the longest sort of period in modern Argentine history of growth and, and stability in the currency. Um, we can jump ahead to it ending badly yet again and the crisis that you've referenced and inflation becomes out of control. And again, Argentina ends up indebted in dollars. Um, and so the 2001 economic depression is probably, after the dirty war, the most kind of economically, politically, and emotionally resonant um, instance in, our, in modern Argentine history. Um, it, it affects, it erodes the middle class, and, and basically almost anything you want to understand about modern Argentina, probably you could trace to the collapse in 2001. How did Argentina begin to crawl its way out of this hole? Twofold. Luck. 
the commodity super cycle, as it was called at the time, the extraordinary increase in the value of what Argentina exports, including soy and wheat, um, and a default. And so suddenly you have some fiscal space that the Argentine story is always overspending and overborrowing. And in this case, suddenly they're generating tremendous wealth through their exports. And under this figure, Nestor Kirchner, who emerges again, like we talked about Carlos Menem, he is a Peronist who sort of comes out of nowhere from a remote province, this time in the south of Argentina. And he comes in um, and he takes advantage of both the great external environment and this default and a very hard line negotiating tactics with all of Argentine uh, creditors. And you have this incredible economic recovery that really calms the country and creates a lot of confidence in him. And after four years, he leaves as you know one of the most popular presidents in modern Argentine history. You mentioned Kirchner. Uh, Nestor Kirchner and his wife, Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner, continue to have an impact on Argentine politics today. Do you think Kirchnerism, which is a term that we hear, um, is just dressed up Peronism or is it its own thing? Again, I think Kirchnerism um, shares some common ideas with Peronism. I don't think it's so distinct as to say, again, that there is no core beliefs in Peronism. It is uh, focused on, again, the urban and working class, somewhat distinct from pre-crisis Peronism. It has to mobilize, again, particularly in Buenos Aires province and the suburbs around the capital city of Buenos Aires, a lot of the poor and informal workers. A third of Argentines live in poverty. 30% of Argentine workers are in the informal sector. And so Kirchnerism is a kind of Peronism that really mobilizes and depends upon those Argentines. And its popularity depends upon this massive transfer of wealth to these individuals. Initially, under Nestor, in those first four years, you were able to do so with a lot of the wealth that Argentina was truly generating with the very favorable prices for Argentine exports. Later, it's done through deficit spending. And again, this will sound familiar, money printing to pay for that. Previously, that had been done often through borrowing, but the Kirchners, because of this hard line with creditors, were fundamentally unable to borrow. So you mentioned a lot of the problems that Argentina is still facing today. That would probably be a good segue to talk about President Macri. Uh, where did President Macri come from? Yeah, I think the Kirchners governed for 12 years following this very traumatic economic depression that had really, as we said, eroded the confidence and the resources of Argentina's middle class and really shocked Argentine society. Um, and you had Argentines turn to outsiders, as happens in those periods, but those outsiders more or less govern democratically. I say more or less because it's a country of weak democratic institutions um, and uh, traditionally a high concentration of power that was even more concentrated in the hands of Nestor Kirchner and later Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner, his wife and, and successor for two terms. The democratic system functioned throughout this period. However, there was a lot of bad economic management in this period, high levels of corruption um, and an extraordinary um, failure to deal with real structural imbalances that emerged as emergency measures from the 2001 crisis and were never removed. So starting in 2001, the government gains emergency powers of all sorts and understandably starts to subsidize society in ways that were needed when you have poverty increasing to 50% and you have extraordinary levels of unemployment. But now we're talking about more than a decade later, and the government can't afford it. Um, the government can't afford the expansion of the public workforce, and it can't afford the transfers to the provinces, an overvalued peso and reserves that were depleted, and every inflation that was increasing and growth that was um, headed in the wrong direction. And so Argentine society is sort of faced in 2015 in that election with a choice now, and emerges Mauricio Macri. 
as an outsider businessman who'd governed for two terms successfully in the capital Buenos Aires. He'd been the head of one of the two most popular soccer teams in Argentina. And he comes in offering a clean, good governance, technocratic approach. Um, and he benefits from exhaustion with Cristina, as she's known in Argentina, and a divided parentism that by then had had a lot of fracturing that went on with people just sick of the corruption and sick of, frankly, her personality and megalomania. Um, and in an election that sort of split the opposition, Mauricio Macri was able to sort of shock Argentina. You just talked about the inflation issues that Macri is still dealing with today. And now we hear this term, gradualismo. Could you unpack that term for us? So Mauricio Macri comes into office and inherits, you know, what some economists have called sort of this mission impossible, which was an overvalued peso. He inherits inflation that was, you know, in double digits already. He inherits an economy headed toward recession. Amid of all this, he inherits these structural imbalances that we've talked about, price controls, distorting production decisions. He inherits all these subsidies that he can't afford. He inherits a fiscal deficit of 6 or 7%. He inherits no ability to borrow internationally because they've still never settled from that default we talked about from 2001. So you mentioned Grado Alismo. His approach was this. He said, look, we need to adjust spending in Argentina. This is a problem that we've endlessly grappled with. It always results in, in too much borrowing and too much dependence on you know low interest rates in the United States and elsewhere and dependent upon our ability to service dollar debts. But he says we're going to do it gradually because the political economy will not permit a rapid adjustment for two reasons. Number one, the Kirchners for all their economic disasters did not have a crisis. And this is frequently said as a justification, an excuse for why Grado Alismo was implemented in Argentina. That the Argentines, though you could tell them a hundred times how big a disaster was inherited by this government, they didn't feel it because they were able, the Kirchners were able to maintain that currency um, overvalued toward the very end. They were able to lie about inflation and economic growth. They were able to distort the data. And so you didn't feel like there was a crisis. And so you didn't have the political capital going in. It was, a, first of all, a close election and no sense of emergency. Um, and also just the memory of all these non-parentists leaving office early. De La Rua, again, who had to flee protests in front of the presidential palace. Alfonsin, this historic president, the first democratic president, had to leave early and let Menem um, advance his inauguration. The memory of these governability crises, the lack of an emergency feeling in Argentina, um, made the Argentine government make a decision that ultimately has proved problematic which was a very slow reduction of the deficit and a heavy reliance on borrowing. They were able to finally settle with these so-called holdout creditors that had kept Argentina out of capital markets. And they said, fine, we're going to borrow what turned out to be $30 billion a year. Wall Street loved Mauricio Macri and was happy to lend. Interest rates were still low internationally. It seemed like a great approach. He, he did fantastic in the midterms a year ago, October. And as of that moment, there was a sense, hey, this is a good model. So the success of Greta Valismo lasted until a few months ago. And several negative external shocks, as economists say, undermine the entire economic program and the political movement in Argentina now. So what's the alternative to gradualismo? It's the IMF, once again, um, coming in and imposing austerity, imposing harsh restrictions on monetary policy. So you basically have an Argentina that's entering a recession with monetary policy that's going to make the recession much worse, with 70% interest rates right now, making it impossible to borrow, with a fiscal policy that's completely procyclical because now they need to get to zero balance, right? So you're reducing government spending on infrastructure, you're reducing uh, the monetary 
planetary emissions, right? They now can have no more pesos entering the economy. And you're doing this in a, you know, a stagflationary period, right? With unbelievably high inflation, a recession, strict monetary policy, and a very unhappy population. Not a simple situation at all. Benjamin, thank you so much for speaking with us today. It was a pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. Gracias a la vida que me ha dado tanto me dio dos luces I'm with Casey Cagley, program manager of Argentina and other countries in Latin America. So Casey, what did you draw from that conversation with Dr. Gadan? Thanks for having me. This was really interesting to hear what Dr. Gadan was saying. Um, I think especially what he has to say about the 2001 economic crisis. Understanding that is is really critical to, to understanding the current crisis, uh, what's happening right now, but also the reaction to it. You know, as he said, the, the issue of inflation, the decline of the peso against the dollar, these are all things that Argentines feel in their pockets. The presence of a, you know, a right of center president in office, but especially the appearance of the IMF. The IMF is an institution for which, you know, many Argentines don't have very fond memories. They are, are associated with policies of austerity in the aftermath of that recession. And so for a lot of them, what's happening today really brings back very bad and painful memories of what happened almost 20 years ago. The other thing I would highlight is kind of a common thread throughout Dr. Gadan's great history that he shared with us, and that is weak institutions. This is something that's chronic, uh, not just in Argentina, but throughout the region. And it's something that contributes to the corruption and the repeated economic and political crises. And next, we hear from Agustina De Luca. Agustina, thank you so much for speaking with us today. It's okay, no problem. Some describe Argentina's political system as hyper-presidentialist. Could you please describe how hyper-presidentialism erodes the checks and balances imposed on the executive and contributes to corruption? Generally, all countries in Latin America are very presidentialist. The type of politics that we have in our countries contributes to increasing the role of presidents and the executive branch. In Argentina, particularly, we have the, the faculty of the executive to introduce bills in Congress and to legislate by it himself through decrees of necessity and urgency, which have been used quite a lot by many presidents. So, I mean, it's something that is, it's not about a specific administration, but it's how we make politics. The faculty that, that several administrative and budgetary bills allow the executive and the ministries to redistribute parts of the budget into priorities of the moment. So, for instance, the um, chief of staff of the ministry, there was a specific bill that allowed him to redistribute parts of the budget into other areas, different to what Congress has passed in the budget bill. So the, the thing that uh, having power concentrated in one person, of course, increases lobbying and not transparent negotiations between organizations, businesses, groups of interest, which might provoke more corruption cases, but I don't think that it, uh, that, that corruption is completely aligned with hyper-presidentialism. I think it's 
more about the way we we make politics, the way politicians behave, and not about the, the institutional system by itself. That's interesting. There's a couple of points I wanted to follow up on. So if I understand correctly, uh, Argentina's system has been called hyper-presidentialist because the power of the executive or the president vastly outweighs that of the Congress and the judiciary. Am I correct in thinking that this was an example that began with Perón and has been has continued? It's not quite since 1940. I mean, the, the, the term hyper-presidentialism has become more uh, since the reform of our constitution in 1994. We have had some more popular presidents and some others that respected more institutions. So the the presidentialism comes after 1994, where we created the chief of staff figure. We allowed the president to to publish decrees of necessity and urgency, and I mean other instruments that that may seem as presidentialism, but it's more like a, a, a communication strategy that rather than really, really having a, a completely concentration of power in the president and the, the lack of check of checks and balances and the lack of control from the legislative on the executive and the lack of investigation of the judiciary over the executive, it's more about the weaknesses of our institutions and the type of political elite that we have rather than, than an institutional constraint. Okay, okay. So it really came from 1994 with the modifications of the Constitution then. Yeah. You also pushed back on, on my idea that hyper-presidentialism contributes to corruption. So, I mean, in your mind, do you think Argentina does have an issue with corruption? And, and, and what do you think contributes to that environment? Latin America in general is threatened by corruption. It's systemic. It's not from one political party, it's not from one specific politician, it's not about a specific period of time, it's about the way politicians make their decisions, it's about how politics are financed, and the, the, the specific system that for financing your campaign you need for, I mean, millions and millions of dollars. So it's, it's systemic and it's about different parts of the ecosystem. It's about culture, it's about institutional constraints, it's about bureaucracy, it's about the, the, I mean, the amount of money that politics demands. Right. So could you give so, an example of how that actually works in Argentina and um, how it's playing out right now? I mean, we've been seeing in the news uh, the, the scandals going on with the corruption notebooks. and. Yeah, I mean, now in, in the past few months, we have these notebooks, the, the corruption notebooks that you were mentioning. But the last month, we had um, a corruption case from our former president, Carlos Menem, which was about... Uh, uh, gun trafficking. That was of 1992. I don't know, it was like really, really old. We had 30 years investigating a huge corruption case, which was actually proven, and he didn't go to prison because he has parliamentary immunity. And the, the, the Senate itself guaranteed him the immunity, and he was actually elected in 2017 again mm-hmm. as a senator, and, and, and the, the case was proven. Then we have many of these corruption cases that are being investigated about Cristina Kirchner administration and Julio De Vido and Cristobal Lopez, I mean, and all these people, uh, they come from 10 years ago, maybe, these cases. But then when they were government, they wouldn't allow the judicial power to investigate. And now that the government changed, they moved this paperwork. And then all the cases that of Macri and of his administration were stopped. And he had uh, some cases being investigated in, the, in court. 
So, I mean, it's about who has the power in a specific moment. Yeah, and that's why, as you mentioned, that parliamentary immunity is, is plays such a big role in these issues because it prevents people from being held accountable. Yeah, parliamentary immunity here, I think it's, it's similar in the U.S. because we copied everything from you, from your constitution. I mean, it doesn't prevent from for investigating. It just prevents for detention. I mean, to putting actually a person in prison. Investigating Christina, for instance, is not prevented, even though she has immunity. Of course, the Senate had to allow the forces to go into her house, but then you had two weeks. They were debating whether they would have the vote or not to allow the judicial to enter to her house to see what's there. So, I mean, of course, she could have hidden everything if she had something. <laughs> it's very tricky. Yeah, it's problematic. Uh, but, but then immunity, yeah. The Senate won't have an agreement, like a gentleman agreement, where they will not take out immunity from the senators unless there's a, a formal ruling from court. So, they, I mean, the Senate says, well, I will not take the immunity and allow a senator to go in jail if we don't have the final resolution from the highest judicial office. So that also goes to the importance of the judiciary independence as well. And I understand yeah. that in Argentina, that's not some, that's something that's also lacking a little bit. Yeah, I would say a, a very big little bit. Judicial independence is, is critical here. When this government took office, they tried to remove by a decree the head of the prosecutors, for instance. Oh, wow. They tried to appoint two different judges for court through these necessity and urgency decrees rather than going through the participatory and transparent process through Congress. And, and then you see the sentences and the rulings that they write, and you can see clear a, a political role there. Mm-hmm. They are not impartial. There are specific paragraphs that you say this is not the way a judge should write its own ruling. So a lot of issues to untangle there for Argentina as they try and address these corruption issues that are systemic. I mean, it, it seems like it pervades every branch of government. It's like that. I mean, no one, no one is clean. So they, come, they keep on negotiating behind the curtains and yeah. their own benefits. Yeah. Switching topics. I'm curious about the relationship now between President Macri and the Congress. As we know, his party doesn't have the majority in the Congress so this forces him to do a lot of negotiating with the opposition that many of his predecessors didn't have to do. Yeah, in that first two years of government, they had to really, really negotiate everything with different political parties. That didn't prevent them to pass the bills they wanted to pass. Uh, the capital market bills, I mean, they had many bills that they wanted to pass, and they did. Well, the access to information bill, the whistleblower one, talking about corruption, I mean, they had many, many bills that they wanted to pass and they could do so, but none of them was without modification imposed by other political parties in Congress. I think that's healthy for a democratic system and for negotiating and for listening everyone's voices. It demands more time. For instance, the access to information law was passed in 2016 and it actually came into force in 2017. It's I mean, there is still a lot to be done for its implementation. In Congress, the control organisms have not been created yet. In the other branches of government, yes. There are many requests that are not answered. But, of course, we know this is a process and we are on the, on the good direction. We were one of the four countries from the region that didn't have a law. 
So being one of the last contributed to having a good bill because we gather all the good experiences and the peer exchange from other countries. So it is a process that we are going through. There's still a lot to be done and it will depend very much on how the government communicates. That makes sense. That's actually a good segue for the other topic I wanted to talk about, which is that Argentina's government does a very good job advertising itself from the lens of sort of Buenos Aires being a rich, developed city. But then when you step outside of Buenos Aires, it's a very different situation. So could you talk to us a little bit about the differences between life in Buenos Aires and outside the capital for Argentines? It's a completely different region. I mean, Buenos Aires and provinces that have access to the port or that had had a product of the expectation of primary goods, like Santa Fe, Cordoba, or Mendoza, have developed themselves and they have a high budget. But then other provinces in the north or in the south of the countries, I mean, the, the country is very diverse. It's very, very different. So the culture itself is very different. The food we eat is different. The types of industry that we produce are different. In the north, we have solar energy and we have a very arid climate where we produce sugar, grapes, I mean, wine. And in the south, we have mining, oil, gas. So, I mean, the type of production are very different, which makes the type of work people have to do is very different. So the amount of money that they get is different. So it's a very, very diverse country. And how do those regional differences play into Argentina's politics, uh, specifically, you know, the politics of corruption? <laughs> That's the origin of the, of the mess that we have now, <laughs> because in the in the provinces it's a more informal scenario. I mean, of course, there's nepotism and there are oppressions because 80% of the employment of the province is in the public sector, in the municipality and the province government. So, of course, there are pressures to vote for that governor because if not, he will fire all the people and so on. So, Casey, despite this uh, history of hyper-presidentialism, what Ms. DeLuca described may be uh, evidence of a new a turning point in Argentine history, hopefully, um, where hyper-presidentialism becomes weaker and you have strength and power on the, on the Congress's part, or at least that's what they're going for. How is that playing out right now between the president, Macri, who's interested in helping strengthen the Congress and the Congress itself? That's a good question and, and a tough one. I think, you know, this issue of uh, minority government is is really important to understand. Going back actually to Professor Gadan's comments, he mentioned that, you know, when President Macri was elected, first of all, it, he was very unlikely that he was going to be elected in the first place much less be able to govern for long with, you know, a minority in Congress. Actually, it, it turned out in the, the year or two subsequent that his minority coalition had to negotiate, had to collaborate with the opposition. And I think it surprised a lot of people that actually that period was one of the more productive periods in the legislature in, in recent history. I think a couple of interesting things that came out of that with which IRI is working are the access to information law. And IRI has been very active in helping the Camara, the Chamber of Deputies, implement that law uh, within the Congress, and the, the Budget Office. These are things that the Chamber has 
implemented to, again, sort of strengthen their own institution, independent or or vis-a-vis the executive, regardless of who's in office. Because I think the key thing here is that we maybe saw a period of maybe two years of harmony between President Macri's coalition and the opposition. I think as the elections of next year have gotten closer, that harmony may or may not last, let's say. And regardless of what happens between now and then, you, you can never count on that uh, that to last. So we see this as sort of a, a window of opportunity, as I think did many within the political system in Argentina. This is a political moment of opportunity where we have the will to make some changes and improve things, improve capacity, improve independence. And so whether or not this has implications for hyper-presidentialism, I don't know, but I think it's moving in the right direction. The other interesting thing that I think uh, Mr. Luca alluded to is another way in which the, the Congress has asserted itself, and that's through parliamentary diplomacy. I think we've seen a lot how President Macri and his administration have opened up to the world, and, and most famously that is opening up towards financial markets, and towards the United States, Europe as well, South Korea, Japan, Australia, they've opened up in in a lot of ways in a lot of places. But so has the Congress, and they've actually put together a very robust parliamentary diplomacy. And I think that's something that beyond the the access to information and the, the budget office, things where IRI is working that I mentioned, that parliamentary diplomacy, I think, will serve them in the long run and help them be that strong institutional check in Argentina. now for our final interview with Ambassador Lino Gutierrez. Thank you so much for speaking with us, Ambassador. So you became ambassador to Argentina at the beginning of Nestor Kirchner's presidency, which was right after the end of the Argentine Great Depression. That sounds like quite a challenging time to become ambassador. What was Argentina like when you first moved there in 2003 versus when you left in 2006? Well, it was just coming out of the worst economic crisis in many years. Uh, Argentina has traditionally been one of the richest countries of uh, Latin America with an educated population, lots of natural resources. And here it was reeling from the devaluation of the peso, which was devalued 75%, the uh, contraction of the economy, and the default on the debt. So Nestor Kirchner was elected more as a vote against former President Menem because he was pretty unknown. It was... uh, a difficult time for most Argentines. Uh, over 50% of Argentines had gone below the poverty level. And you had a lot of contrasts in a magnificent city like Buenos Aires. You would go to a nice restaurant and you would see uh, people around the back looking at the dumpsters to uh, collect cartons or bottles or something to make money on. That's pretty sad. Yeah. Actually, uh, my brother studied abroad in Argentina and long after that, but it really impacted his host family and he told me that she had um, a restaurant, his host mother, and she had to close it. And she got really burned by the whole experience and didn't want to really, she didn't want to deal in pesos anymore. She only accepted dollars. Right, right. And, and I think what happened was uh, that a middle class had been not created, but increased in size in the Menem years when they tied the peso to the dollar. And many Argentines acquired uh, buying power that they didn't didn't have before. You had people like taxi drivers telling me they had gone to Disney World and things like that that would not have been possible many years before. 
And when uh, the economic crisis began, a lot of the companies that had provided jobs and invested in Argentina packed up and left. So all these jobs pretty much disappeared. So was Argentina recovered by the time you left in 2006? It was starting to recover, starting to recover. It it grew at a 9% pace for four years in a row, thanks largely to the Chinese and their appetite for soybeans, of which Argentina is one of the largest producers, and beef. They started to invest more and buy a lot of the products, and then there was nowhere to go but up because they had really contracted by, by quite a bit. So not only was it kind of a trying time for Argentina, but the the relations between the U.S. and Argentina were all also at a, a low ebb. That, that came later. That came later? Yes. Okay. I think in the beginning, there had been solidarity after 9-11, and we didn't know enough about Kirchner to see where he would take the country. He was a Peronist, but more of a left-wing Peronist. And in the beginning, we cooperated on a number of fronts. We co- cooperated very well on counterterrorism. We signed agreements on counter-narcotics container security. So at the working level, uh, I think relations are pretty good. Kircher would occasionally go off and talk about the first world, oppressing the third world, and things like that, but without naming names. So we could work with that. Do you have any anecdotes or stories from your time there that stick out to you? Well, let me just continue the story okay. because I'm telling you that things were good at the oh, beginning. Okay, yeah, sure. <laughs> and then? <laughs> and then in 2005, it was Argentina's turn to host the Summit of the Americas mm-hmm. in Mar del Plata. Of course, the 34 democratic countries of the hemisphere are invited to go to Argentina, so that was quite a production. And of course, negotiating on behalf of the United States was quite a big deal because, you know, in these visits, the White House demands a primary role. And, uh, and of course, this was a time when uh, there had been disillusionment with the Iraq War and Abu Ghraib had appeared on the pages of the international media, and there was not a lot of support for our policy in Iraq, to the point where the, where the Argentine left kind of coalesced around this and called for a pretty much a, a national strike on the day President Bush arrived and everything. At this time, I think President Kirchner was trying to have a foot in both camps, the opposition to the summit and the organization of the summit, which we had never seen a host do, they organized an anti-summit for people like Evo Morales and some of the people who were anti-Iraq policy, the Cubans. The anti-summit became a big production, and the Argentines made a stadium available, and they sent representatives to the anti-summit at the same time they were hosting the summit. So we should have seen something was coming at this meeting. And when President Bush arrived and all the other dignitaries, and they're sitting down at the opening ceremony, President Kirchner decides to unleash some strong language against the U.S., blasting the Washington consensus and saying U.S. policies had cost unemployment, poverty, and suffering in the hemisphere. And I'm sitting next to the director of the NSC, um, and I'm surprised by this because I had met with President Kirchner three days before to give him the good news that the FAA had accepted the Argentine Airlines to come in under Category 1 to the U.S., and he was very happy about that. But no one at that time told me we have a big problem or anything. I think he had uh, some advisors who told him that as long as you support the Americans on counterterrorism, then you can say anything you want. Well, that didn't work very well. Uh, The summit became pretty much a disaster for the hosts because they wanted to end the FTAA, the Free Trade Area of the Americas, unless the U.S. removed its agricultural uh, subsidies. And, of course, we weren't going to do that. We could not promise to do that. 
at the debate, all the countries that had signed the FTAA rose up and said, no, we think this is a good, a good thing. And Argentina, you know, became very intransigent and rude, actually. Uh, President Kirchner yelled at President Fox of Mexico, uh, called a U.S. representative, uh, said something he had said was absurd. You know, it was not a pretty sight. Uh, the Brazilians, at the time led by President Lula, played it a lot more intelligently in that they supported, of course, a Mercosur position of non-negotiating, but they blamed the Argentines for the rudeness and, and the fact that the summit got out of hand. And the next day after the summit, President Lula received President Bush in Brazil with a bear hug. And, uh, you know, the Argentines looked uh, pretty bad uh, before the rest of the world. But after the summit of the Americas, Kirchner adopted uh, many more pro-populist positions, and the relationship deteriorated the White House told me, forget about any more meetings in the White House and anything like that. That's interesting. Why do you think he had that such extreme change of heart? Well, I think he felt comfortable being a leader of the left and being associated with um, Chavez, Morales, Daniel Ortega, that group. The Kirchner just went whole hog into the populist orbit. And my last few months there were, unfortunately, we had a, a lot more distant relationship. We had to recalibrate after Mar del Plata. You wrote also in 2016 that the stage is set for improving U.S.-Argentine cooperation and stronger commercial ties. So how do you feel relations are now between Argentina and the U.S.? I think they're the best that they've been in, in over a decade. Under the Kirchner's, relations became very contentious. We had two incidents. Uh, one of them was the so-called Valija Gate. Uh, right after I left, when Cristina Kirchner was running for president in 2007, and a visitor to Argent from Venezuela was detained at the airport with a attaché case that had, I don't know how many thousands of dollars in cash that were supposedly destined for the Christina Kircher campaign. And that became a cause celebre. Uh, and we had a, a U.S. attorney in Florida who indicted some Argentine officials. And, of course, Christina Kircher blamed the U.S., and no explanation that U.S. attorneys have some independence would resonate with her. So my successor was prevented for a while from me even meeting with government officials and asked to send a diplomatic note before he could even meet with the foreign minister. These are things that smack of 1950s Eastern Europe or the Soviet Union. Yeah. And then a few years later, there was a a U.S. plane that came in with a, uh, equipment for a scheduled military exercise with the Argentine police, actually a counterterrorism exercise. And in these exercises, there are simulations and live ammunition is fired. So the U.S. plane carried medical equipment, such as some drugs, in case uh, people were shot, and some weapons for the exercise. And the Argentine foreign minister went to the airport, demanded the crates from the plane be opened, to make a big spectacle about the U.S. introducing drugs and weapons into the country. Totally made up, and our relations deteriorated even further then. So with Macri came a more sensible approach, more openness to international uh, investment. And he and President Trump apparently hit it off the uh, times that they have met. Yeah, so I've read. So how about between Argentina and the rest of Latin America? How are our relations between them? Mr. Macri is clearly not a member of the populist club, which has dwindled a little bit. So I think Mr. Macri has good relations with the hemisphere. He is willing to take on the Venezuelan government and support the opposition and to denounce the Cuban regime. 
And now you have some new governments that are kind of like-minded, Piñera in Chile. You had Kuczynski in Peru. I don't know about his successor, what positions he's going to take. But even the new president of Ecuador has a more centrist policy. So I think Mr. Macri fits right in with this new wave. And how about Argentina's relations with the rest of the world? You mentioned China earlier. Yes. Well, Argentina under Cristina Kirchner, of course, the uh, world financial community had no faith in that government. They pretty much kicked the IMF out of Argentina under Cristina Kirchner. Uh, at one point, she was asked, why doesn't Argentina have good relations with the world financial community? And she said something like, well, when we had good relations, look what happened. We had an economic crisis. That pretty much negated investment. And they adopted some old economic policies of uh, bringing the state back into the means of production. You know, they're very tough on the oil companies, the investors. They subsidized electricity and things like that. So there was very little invest, uh, confidence by investors into Argentina. And, and Mr. Macri has suffered from that because uh, all memories persist among many investors and investment has not come as quickly as they had hoped. Yeah, which is why, ironically, they're resorting to the IMF now. They are. A uh, $57 billion loan, one of the largest in history. And, of course, Argentinians have been conditioned pretty much to hate the IMF by the previous administration. So I think right now a majority of Argentines are not too happy with this loan. So it'll take some explaining to show results for the administration. Well, as you know, Argentina is set to host the G20 summit in November. What, in your opinion, is Argentina hoping to accomplish through the summit? Well, maybe support for their economic policies and for, the, for them in the IMF. And there's a presidential election coming uh, next year. So Mr. Macri is hoping that he can gain some international prestige and solidarity from other world leaders, show them that Argentina is a key player. I mean, I don't think you could justify Argentina being in the G20 and a GNP basis. But hopefully Mr. Macri will get some spotlight and show how important Argentina still is and that things are getting better for the majority of Argentines. Yeah. Hopefully different than the Summit of Americas that you were at. Yes. I don't think it'll be the same thing, but who knows? (laughs) Well, thank you very much for your time. That was really interesting to hear about. My pleasure. So, Casey, we've heard about Ambassador Gutierrez's personal experience at a pretty low point uh, in U.S.-Argentine relations. What do you think we have now to look forward to during this Trump administration between Trump and Macri and U.S.-Argentine relations? Yeah, it was pretty fascinating to hear about what it was like in the room as those relationships were not just declining, but collapsing almost. Now, in the last two years, we've seen under both the Obama administration and the Trump administration kind of a renaissance of relationships, I think, led by the Macri government. President Trump will be going down there at the end of this month. This will be his first trip to the region as president. He and President Macri have famously a a pretty good and friendly relationship personally. I think what he'll be looking to do is shore up and support President Macri's reforms in this really difficult time. I think for the Argentines, this uh, G20 summit was meant to be a sort of a coming out party, and it's turning out to be maybe a bailout party. I think beyond the headlines, there's a handful of areas where the United States and Argentina 
have and want to work closely. And those are things like citizen security, counter-narcotics, counter-terrorism, um, fighting organized crime, those sorts of things where, where the United States does have a strong interest. And I think the Trump administration wants to encourage all of those things and cooperate on those issues that I mentioned. Issues where IRI has been active throughout the region. And so it'll be interesting to see what comes out of this summit and uh, President Trump's visit to Argentina. Okay, listeners, if I had to boil down the three interviews we just heard into three takeaways, as we do in every episode, I'd say first that Argentina has some pretty serious short-term economic needs. Throughout its history, Argentina has taken various approaches to persistent economic problems, oscillating between populist solutions and austerity as prescribed by the international financial institutions like the IMF. For various reasons, Argentina once again finds itself seeking remedies from the international financial community. But it remains to be seen whether Argentina will sustain the political will to follow through on these remedies. The second takeaway, and this gets a little bit technical, but for me, Macri's government represents a historic shift to date away from the populist policymaking and stance on the world stage that is prevalent throughout Argentina's history. And demonstrating a successful non-populist model would bolster democratic forces throughout the region. And my third takeaway is, while Argentina is undoubtedly a democracy at this point, there are still steps that each country needs to go through to reach a sort of more democratic state. And one step that Argentina is still going through right now and that many countries are going through or about to go through or hopefully will go through is the separation of politics from individuals and personalities. And the way to do this is by supporting democratic institutions. So, as always, we had wonderful guests that we need to thank. First, I'd like to thank Dr. Benjamin Gadan for taking us through the history of Argentina's economic challenges that we are witnessing today. You can find out more about his, the work he's doing at the Wilson Center and follow him on Twitter at Benjamin Gadan. Next, I'd like to thank Agustina De Luca for sharing her on-the-ground insight into some of the institutional challenges Argentina is facing. You can follow her at, on Twitter at Agus underscore De Luca and learn more about her organization's work at directoriolegislativo.org. Then, of course, we need to thank Ambassador Gutierrez for sharing his behind-the-scenes perspective. Finally, IRI's own Casey Cagley. We need to thank him for providing his insight and talking about how IRI fits into all the issues that we discussed. You can follow him on Twitter at C.E. Cagley. And that's all for now, folks. See you next time.